College athletes to make money? What does this mean for the NC2As? Will college sports ever be the same? Darren Heitner, sports lawyer and above-the-law columnist, returns. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello, listeners. Welcome. We've got a fun show for you today about college sports and making money. But before we get to that, we need to thank our sponsor, NBI, the National Business Institute. Attorneys have trusted NBI with their CLE needs for over 35 years. Visit nbi-sems.com today and find out why. But don't forget to use their promo code LegalTalkNBI to get $100 off your next CLE. All right. Hi, Darren. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Lawrence. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. So I um, I read your article on Above the Law. It was titled National College Athletes Bill of Rights is fine in theory, but not practical. I was doing that in my uh, show prep for this week. And uh, you drew me in with that first paragraph when you mentioned name, image, and likeness. And I immediately thought of Madden, the college edition. And that's when I realized this proposed bill could be a huge, huge deal. And so what I'd like to do, Darren, is break this down just a little bit. I, I understand that some states have extended themselves a little bit into this territory of some type of revenue sharing with college athletes from the universities that do make uh, quite a bit of money off of their participation. And so California and Colorado uh, introduced some uh, early bills that are now laws. And then Florida has followed up with the bill that becomes a law in 2021 in July. And so they focus primarily on that name, image, and likeness component. But uh, in terms of this what's being proposed with a national bill, how does it go further when it comes to name, image, and likeness in college athletes making money, I guess, off their name and, and their picture? Well, that's right. I, to an extent, the national effort through this College Athlete Bill of Rights somewhat mirrors what's been accomplished in the states of Florida, California, and Colorado. And primarily, it's a focus on providing college athletes the ability to commercialize and make money off of their names, images, and likenesses, commonly referred to as publicity rights. And there are 30 plus other states that are currently looking into similar legislation. Again, this would streamline it on a national level. And as you mentioned at the lead, it would also potentially include group licensing arrangements with minimal restrictions. As you mentioned, that could allow us a return of the NCA video game. But This piece of legislation goes even further and well beyond name, image, and likeness rights, which is something that we in the state of Florida tried to remain very focused on, sticking with name, image, and likeness, which is true in California and Colorado as well. On the federal level, you have an effort behind many Democrats and an independent, and that includes Senators Cory Booker and Kamala Harris even, who not only want to provide college athletes with these rights, but also create revenue sharing agreements between the players and the NCAA, between the players and the respective college conferences and even the universities, and provide these athletes what they call fair and equitable compensation. They also want to provide commensurate lifetime scholarships to individuals, ability for athletes to easily make transfers from one school to another, and a host of other opportunities providing them to those athletes. So again, it goes well beyond the scope of simply name, image, and likeness and opens the door to all these other issues, which could end up being a roadblock 
for the success of this legislation. Yeah, and I want to break off some of those individual components one at a time. But uh, one thing I wanted to follow up on, because I do know under NC2As, different rules apply differently for Division One, Division Two, and Division Three. And so this bill, is it aimed at all of those official uh, divisions of university sports play? So what's particularly interesting right now is you've had these senators, very prominent senators on Capitol Hill, introduce bullet points surrounding this proposed legislation, but nobody has actually seen the text of the legislation. And that's probably because it's not yet written. So a lot of assumptions need to be made based on the language that's been provided thus far. And I think a, a fair assumption is, is that this would be provided across the board to NCAA athletes. But it, it could be true that it is only applied to Division One athletes and not Division Two and Division Three. but we just don't know yet. Okay, so right now we're looking at sort of a blank slate, but, uh, you know, just in terms of predicting, you know, just a couple of these uh, major bullet points, like the ban on transfer restrictions. I'm pretty familiar with this, and this is an instance where, let's say, a college athlete, let's just say it's a real college athlete, you know, student scholar, uh, wants to transfer out of a school that maybe has a little bit better feeder system for a graduate program they want to participate in. So is making an honest-to-goodness, you know, decision about their career. You know, let's, let's call them a swimmer, let's call them a track and field star. They still want to participate in college athletics, but they need to get to this other school. And so historically, as I understand it, coaches could really kind of hold them up, wouldn't release them into the new program, even though they might have the times to be there. And so, yes, you could transfer, but you would lose your ability to participate for a year. And of course, you're probably looking at loss of scholarship. So what do you think they're going to do in terms of that? Are they going to open that up so that the coaches can't hold up on that transfer? That seems to be the road that these senators want to travel, which is completely remove any restrictions on college athletes and allow them to transfer freely. And a lot of athletes are not only transferring because they believe that they will have more opportunity at a rival school or at another athletic department, but oftentimes because of health and safety and welfare conditions, not only for themselves, but sometimes they want to move closer to family that may be suffering through pain. And oftentimes these athletes are unfortunately restricted from transferring, uh, whether it be because a coach or the athletic department doesn't want to have uh, an issue because it's a prominent player or because the NCA simply won't allow for it. And I think here you have individuals on Capitol Hill on the national level saying this is simply inequitable. It's not fair to these athletes who aren't paid. Who, so that's another component of, of their piece of legislation that they're proposing, but who currently are not paid, really have no rights, have no ability to collectively bargain. And if they hold out, they're only the ones, they're the ones that suffer. And so I think a lot of them probably look at it even from an antitrust angle and say, this is, this is absolutely restricted policy and there's no reasonable basis for it. And so I think that's the premise behind it all. Yeah, yeah, I'd say it's interesting, uh, just sort of uh, <laughs> that amateur status and, you know, all the rules that uh, play. And it even comes down to scheduling classes. You know, uh, student athletes are pretty restricted from a lot of these things that most students can participate in. So let, let me uh, let's touch on healthcare a little bit. So, you know, um, I, I know that, uh, you know, there's obviously, you know, um, you've got your your trainers at the uh, at the facilities, the sports facilities. And of course, you've got the ambulance, which is obligatorily uh, present at a football game just in case they need it. But in terms 
terms of this comprehensive health care coverage, I guess what I don't understand, what's not covered under the policies that these sports facilities have? I mean, don't they have to kind of put you back together uh, after you get an injury? And I guess, what do you think uh, these senators are looking for in terms of uh, comprehensive health care coverage for sports-related injuries? It's actually something that we looked at in the state of Florida when we were debating our name, image, and likeness legislation. And there were certain components that got cut out of the equation, and that included full health uh, insurance protection and disability protection. So you may be surprised that this is not something that's standardized or, or applied and provided to athletes across the board. And some, at some in instances and at some schools, more players are provided this type of protection than not. But then if you're not looking at the powerhouse schools like in Alabama, University of Florida, Clemson, et cetera, and you go down the line, you'd actually find that a lot of these players are just simply not sufficiently protected and not sufficiently covered. And so this effort by U.S. senators would really streamline it and make it so that this is an opportunity and it's a protection for athletes across the board. Okay. Yeah. And I think that that's one of those elements that uh, does concern you with some of the cost control measures. But before we get to that, I do want to talk about this revenue sharing component. So you're talking about, you know, the NC2A, you're talking about conferences, you're talking about universities. My guess is you're probably also talking about major tournaments too, that are featured on uh, major televised events. And so what do you envision will be like, how would this work out? I mean, is this shared um, is it shared by talent? Is it shared by share? Like if you're, if you're like one of 50 people on a team, you get a one fiftieth share of the revenue that's allocated to your team. How, how do you think this would work? I don't think it will work. I think there are a lot of questions that need to be asked. And I wonder whether these senators have really thought through the consequences of a decision like this. If we're talking about revenue sharing on top line revenue, that's received by athletic departments, then you're going to see a lot of athletic departments, even the most prominent ones operating at a loss. Think about the fact that primarily football programs are covering the expenses for the vast majority of programs within an athletic department that are loss leaders. They are losing money. In many schools, basketball programs aren't even profitable. It's really the, the football programs that are primarily profitable and feed the other programs that wouldn't survive without the football program bring, being there. So if now there needs to be a revenue split, and if it's on top line revenues, where's the money going to come from to pay for these other programs? And will it be evenly split among players and by sex? If not, then we also have to wonder whether there's Title IX implications as well. If, if female athletes aren't receiving the same amount of dollars as male athletes, that could then create another federal issue. And I have not seen any language whatsoever that implies these senators would try to amend Title IX in any way. So I think that there's a host of issues that come about with this revenue sharing concept. Now, from a normative standpoint, absolutely. I think these athletes deserve to share in the profits that any athletic department is receiving based on the efforts that they're providing to those universities. But I think that this needs to really be thought through completely. And we shouldn't start debating really whether or not revenue sharing is appropriate until we see the fine details, which we, we don't have yet. 
You know, when I saw your article, uh, one of the things that came to my mind kind of midway through was redshirt programs. And so uh, for people a little less familiar, redshirt program is where a college athlete is allowed to do basically like an extra year of participation. They they don't get to compete officially, but they get to practice with their team. And so typically as it works out with NC2As, you get four years of participation in competition and you get that one additional year in redshirt. Now, why a coach would like this is because they can bring up a talent that may be a little, uh, maybe a little bit smaller, maybe a little bit on the younger side, maybe have an earlier birth or a later birthday in the year. And so they're just not quite ready, but this gives them an opportunity to work with a young athlete, train them up and get them to where they want to be, plug them into the program. It works great with football, works great with hockey and these programs with where you want a big, strong, fast body, you know, years matter. One extra year really matters. And so, um, Darren, when I saw your article, I was looking at this. I'm like, I bet that extends the age of the incoming freshman that competes. And I wonder what it does to redshirt programs. What are, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I'm, I'm not quite sure. You, so, so, so your belief is that people will stay in school for a longer amount of time? No, I think they'll start their freshman year later. So I think as, as the money, it, let's, say, let's say they are actually able to uh, figure out the funding part of it and university sports becomes big money. I, I can see you know, parents holding their kids back one, two years uh, before they get out of high school. And so they're now a little bit older. I could see these redshirt programs, uh, you know, either the average redshirt age would be older or maybe they um you know maybe they they have to deal with it a different way but basically what i'm trying to say is that i think the incoming freshman's age will get older and i think that'll make it really hard for that uh that real freshman that 18 year old freshman to be on the team you know i I respectfully disagree i think that what we find is many very prominent athletes come from extremely poor socioeconomic backgrounds and simply do not have the liberty to sit around and wait for the opportunities. They want to be thrust into the positions where they can compete right away. In fact, many individuals will choose to go to a different school than perhaps the number one school on their list simply because the coach has promised uh, them opportunity to play right off the bat as opposed to redshirting. I mean, I've, I've found that these athletes and their families are extremely hungry for an opportunity to perform and make it to the next level after that. For a lot of these families, participation in college sports is just a means to an end, uh, which is to ultimately play in the professional ranks. And that's that they believe is their opportunity to break from those poor socioeconomic uh, conditions. So uh, I, I doubt that that lends itself to, to people just sitting back and waiting to enroll um, or desiring to be redshirted. Last question for you, Darren, you know, just as a general matter with all of these components built in, let's say somehow they figure out a way to make the funding. I mean, as a policy matter, how do you feel about this? I have to admit I'm a little torn, you know, so I see a couple of things that are positive. One, I think, uh, you know, lawyers can definitely get involved, you know, with people at an earlier age for, you know, some of their image likeness stuff with uh, college as they enter there. So I think it kind of creates a uh, cottage industry there for sports law attorneys, certainly. So there, there's a positive element there. Uh, but on the other side, I'm a little worried that, uh, you know, commercializing athletic participation too early. I wonder if we're doing our young people a disservice, you know, by not encouraging them to get that, you know, that education at university that, you know, will benefit them uh, statistically more often than not. You know, most of these college athletes, you know, over 90% of them will not go pro for sports that aren't like football and basketball and baseball. You know, you really can only compete you know, kind of a smaller level or maybe go to the Olympics if you're talking about swimming and track and field. But, you know, what do you think of it? Uh, you get the last word. What do you think about this just in, in general terms of as a policy? Well, I view many of these individuals as being athletes first. 
I don't even utilize the term student athletes because I don't think it's a fair way to describe them. The amount of time that they're spending at the facilities, training, performing for the teams, it is typically much greater than the amount of time that they're focusing on their studies. And in fact, schools oftentimes encourage them to do it exactly that way, to focus primarily on the athletics, because that's how the schools are going to be earning a lot of compensation. I think it's an absolute certainty that these athletes should have the right to exploit their names, images, and likenesses. It comes at zero cost to the universities and the conferences and the NCAA. In fact, it could potentially even enhance the value of their existing sponsorships when companies can also affiliate with the students. But if every other student on a college campus has the right to exploit his or her name, image, and likeness, why should the athlete not have a similar right? So I think that is the easiest answer of, of the bunch. Revenue sharing, I think from a normative standpoint, makes sense. But from a practical standpoint, I think extremely difficult. Commensurate lifetime scholarships, I'm not quite sure what that means. I think we need to learn a bit more about what these senators are trying to accomplish. Transparency is great overall. Um, and I am in favor of banning restrictions that currently prohibit individuals from transferring from one school to another. I think it's an unfair restriction. And so I think that there are components, and by and large, most of what the senators are proposing on their face are good ideas. But I think they also have to figure out what's practical and does it make sense to take some of that out of the proposed legislation if it means that the legislation has a better chance of being passed and turned into law. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Darren, and thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please write us in your favorite podcasting app. Also, we'll cite and make available our sources for this episode on our website, LegalTalkNetwork.com. And one more time, thank you to our sponsor for making this program possible, NBI, the National Business Institute. You can find them at nbi-sems.com. Don't forget their promo code, LegalTalkNBI, to receive $100 off your next CLE. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 